0: Talk about comic book characters who die and undie. That's right, it's the one, the only, not a hoax, not a dream. I'm your host, Ben Rathbone, talking to you from. I'm not actually sure. I'm either sealed within six artificial molecules in some kind of echo dimension, or superimposed between three seconds from now and two seconds ago. Who can say in these crazy times? But I have an exciting episode. As I think about which characters to cover, I try to see if I can time it out with the release of movies, shows, and the such, because I think that's fun. I almost didn't bother to do one on any of the Eternals, because, like, they're eternal. Forever. They can't die. It's in the name, right? Wrong. Not only did some of the Eternals die, they all did. And then got better. And the way it all happens is pretty interesting, I think. We'll be following one Eternal in particular for this, by the name of Icarus. He's the first Eternal to appear on page in The Eternals number 1 in 1976. I don't know if he's the most interesting Eternal, but he does seem to be kind of the main guy when it comes to Eternals in, in the comics, so that's who I'm going with. But after seeing the movie, there's a lot of cool characters in the Eternals that I'd like to know more about. And after doing a little bit of research, I think we could do episodes on them later on as well. But for now, let's get into it and talk about the first appearance, the death, and the return of the Eternal Icarus. What's your name, kid? The Human Spider. The Human Spider, that's it? That's the best you got? Yeah. Oh, that sucks. The Son of Creed, how the, the, deadly, the, amazing the year is 1976. The space race just came to a close in the previous year when U.S. astronaut Tom Stafford and USSR cosmonaut Alexei Leonov shake hands in space during the joint Apollo-Soyuz mission. Meanwhile, in the comics industry, megastar artist and Fantastic Four co-creator Jack Kirby has just returned to Marvel after a four-year period of working for their rival DC. With his New Gods comics, Kirby created an entire outer space mythology set within the already existing DC universe. Kirby plans to do nothing less during his newest creative ventures, as the legend dreams up a new outer space mythology for Marvel in the series The Eternals. The Eternals, number one. Conceived, written, and drawn by Jack Kirby. Inked by John for Porton Lettered by Gaspar. Colored by Glynnis Ween. Three individuals approach a majestically carved statue of some otherworldly being's head. Dr. Daniel Damien and his daughter Margot have discovered the God Chamber, the hidden location of numerous artifacts depicting a pantheon of enigmatic cosmic deities worshipped by the Incan peoples. But like, probably just in the Marvel Universe, you know. They made this discovery thanks to their assistant, Ike Harris. Who is Ike Harris? Ike Harris? Ike Harris... Ike Harris? Sounds kind of familiar—I don't know. Anyway, Ike is a man in sunglasses and a hat who knows things. How many things? All the things. Not only did he know the location of the chamber, but he also knows a three-passenger descent vehicle when he sees one. You see, as the group explores the ruins, they soon realize that part of what they're viewing is space-wayfaring technology, as described through the lens of mythological iconography. Margo muses that they may have just made the greatest archaeological find in history. Ike agrees, saying— That the true story of all which has gone before is contained here. All of human history, Dr. Damien asks, to which Ike responds, not just human history. And he goes on to just casually drop that there are other intelligent species on Earth, too. Meanwhile, we shift over to a bunch of weirdos in a secret undersea submarine kind of thing. There's a pink guy. There's a green guy with a big wrinkly head. And a couple others. They're the ruling family and are hearing a report read out by a blue guy. The blue guy doesn't look as weird as them, so they hate him. Get the fuck out, blue guy, and do your job, okay? Turns out this ominously odd collective is on their way to the Chamber of the Gods as well. The green wrinkly guy, Toad, is concerned about the gods' imminent return, as they may scourge them from the Earth, as they did in ancient times. The pink guy, Crow, assures him that he'll find and destroy the cosmic beacon before that will happen. Cutting back to our heroes, Ike has discovered a giant screen TV connected to a telescope. It's depicting the universe, which he calls the vast home of the gods. He reveals that his name is not Ike Harris, but actually Icarus. Ike Harris? Icarus? Oh, damn it. He explains that he is not human, but instead a race related to humans, and launches into the story of how both their species came to be. Long ago, the space gods depicted in these chambers discovered Earth. They found here a planet thriving with a diversity of wildlife, and took it upon themselves to kidnap apes and hook their brains up to weird space technology, which bestowed upon them a cosmic chemistry to jumpstart their evolutionary progress. This process created three distinct species—the deviants, unstable, ever-changing creatures constantly at war, the Eternals, functionally immortal who live apart from other living beings, and humans—well, you know humans The Deviants traveled far underground where they engineered weapons. Humankind's encounters with them throughout the years inspired myths of monsters and other horrors. The Eternals traveled to the highest mountaintops where they developed supernatural powers. Encounters with them inspired entire pantheons of mythological beings. Deviants like crunchy peanut butter and Eternals like creepy. Deviants like pineapples on their pizza, Eternals are snobs about it. They don't like each other. Humans, meanwhile, well, they're just doing all that good human shit you know. Not long after the telling of this incredible story, Crow, who if you haven't figured it out yet, is a Deviant, shows up with an attack squad of his kind. They will stop at nothing to destroy the beacon, which Icarus wants to use to bring the space gods to Earth. But they are too late, as the Eternal is able to activate the beacon in front of their eyes. The Deviants fire laser weaponry at Icarus and his companions, but Icarus is able to quickly mold the atoms of the air into a force field that blocks the attack. He then counterattacks by firing twin beams of energy from his eyes. The fight continues as the doctor joins the fray with a pistol, but the fracas is interrupted by a mighty sound. Everyone who remains standing, deviant, human, and eternal, makes their way outside to look up at the gigantic alien vehicle descending from the sky. The space gods have heard the call, and are here to pay a visit. This comic was pretty wild. Anyone will tell you that Jack Kirby's biggest strength was his imagination, and that bears out here. The big ideas on show are incredible. Sure, the the whole aliens change the course of human evolution and history thing is a well-traveled sci-fi trope at this point, but was it in 1976? Probably not so much. The downside is that the group dynamics are a little two-dimensional so far. The deviants are laid out to be the ugly bad ones and the Eternals the beautiful good ones. But like looked at objectively, the deviants aren't all that wrong. Like, if these space gods are going to destroy them all, I'd want to stop the beacon too, you know? I'd like to think that Kirby plays with these perceptions as the series continues. It makes it a little bit more dynamic, but from what I understand, that's not the case. But I do like Jack Kirby, and the story and art here are pretty cool. Forty-two years later, it's 2018. By now, Marvel Comics has become more than just a comics publisher. Black Panther and Avengers Infinity War both smash box office records this year, further cementing Marvel's motion picture empire. Let's pick up from the end of The Eternals number 1 in the comics universe. That space god who showed up at the end of the issue is part of a hyper-advanced, hyper-powerful race of giant humanoids named the Celestials. This one, in particular, is named... Arisham the Judge, and he is here to, you guessed it, judge. Us, specifically. He's here to judge humanity. He decides to hang out for 50 years before he makes his decision. Icarus is captured and imprisoned in a tube at the bottom of the ocean while defending New York City against a deviant attack. He gets out later on. Arisham the Judge is joined by other Celestials, and at some point they decide to make the judgment a a bit early. We pass. Woo! As this latest host of Celestials leave, most of the Eternals leave as well, all grouped together within one collective consciousness named the Unimind. Icarus remains behind to defend Earth against the Deviants. He does so here and there, but mostly fades into the background of the Marvel Universe, occasionally teaming up with other superheroes, most notably for our purposes, Iron Man. At one point, him and all the Earthbound Eternals lose their memories, and he's able to regain his and sets out on a journey to reawaken the others. After this, he travels up to Mount Olympia to hang out there, like many Eternals have done throughout history. None of the Eternals, or anyone else, expected that the next time they'd see the Celestials would be as corpses, raining down from the sky. The giants were killed by dark Celestials, brought here to Earth by Norse god Loki. A new Avengers roster forms to deal with the threat. We've got Captain America, Iron Man, Thor, Black Panther, Captain Marvel, Doctor Strange, a more hulkish-than-normal She-Hulk, and Ghost Rider. And that just about catches us up to Avengers, Avengers Volume 8, 8, 8, Number 4, by Jason Aaron, Paco Medina, and Ed McGuinness, with inkers Juan Velasco and Mark Morales, color artist David Curiel, and letterer V.C.'s Corey Petit. We open to Odin, All Father of the North Pantheon, telling a story of the first team of Avengers, which he formed and led one million years in the past. As Odin tells it, his first team was both different and familiar. Play along and see if you can match the prehistoric characters with their modern iterations. There was a pompous sorcerer named Agamotto, a hulking green monster named Starbrand, a flaming skull named Rider, a masked warrior named Panther, a redhead with a fire aura named Phoenix, and Iron Fist. Okay, so so the last one is Iron Fist. Odin tells this story to Thor and She-Hulk, who have come to ask the All-Father how to defeat a Dark Celestial. Odin admits that, yes, his team was able to fell one of the creatures, but it was already weakened and sickly before the battle was met. This final host, he says, is unstoppable. Thor refuses to believe this, and urges his father to give them any weapon that could aid them. Odin relents, and takes them to a room sheathed in ice. Thor and She-Hulk begin to pummel their way through. The story shifts to another fabled home of a mythological pantheon, Mount Olympia, home of the Eternals. Iron Man and Doctor Strange have come here looking for information on these Celestials, but the scene they arrive to is horrific. I'm sorry, Toadie, Doctor Strange says. But I can find no signs of life here. It would appear that the Eternals are dead. Indeed, the floors of the building held aloft by Olympia are scattered with the corpses of Eternals. Dr. Strange goes on to say that they did this to each other, or to themselves, within the last few hours. He gives his condolences to Iron Man, who hung out with them here and there. Iron Man says that yes, he knew them, but he never really understood them. As the two heroes strategize their next move, a dying voice calls out to them. The truth, it says. The truth tore us apart. Iron Man follows the voice and finds Icarus bleeding to death. Tony tells him to save his strength, but the Eternal explains the dark secret that caused them to destroy themselves. We are a lie, Tony Stark. We Eternals were great fools. We weren't here to protect you. Cultivate. We were to cultivate you. Your virulence to them, to the space gods, you are a youthful pathogen. You are the ultimate. Doctor Strange arrives and attempts to save Icarus from his wounds, but he is too late. The Eternal continues. I fell. Falling. felt good for a change. The final host. Don't let them unleash the Horde. Only the. Only the Unimind can stop them. Only you could be the cure. Before Tony realizes what's happening, Icarus reaches up and grasps the other man's face, initiating some sort of mind meld. Meanwhile, at the North Pole, looking upon the remains of the first celestial to visit Earth, Loki is attempting to explain to Captain America why bringing the dark celestials to Earth is an act of mercy, not evil. Captain America isn't buying it. He believes that no matter how the celestials may have influenced human evolution, men are what they make of themselves. Loki rebuts, saying that the world's cycle of disease, death, and deformity is finally at an end. We cut back to Thor and She-Hulk, who have broken through the ice to find Odin's weapon, the blood of Ymir, first of the Ice Colossi, father of all giants. It was no easy feat, as the frigid air past the ice was so cold it brought even Thor to his knees. A fervent kiss from the towering, muscular heroine warms and rejuvenates the god, saving him. As they return... Odin repeats that even with this weapon, they do not have a chance of victory. He recounts his own team's battle with a host of Celestials, come to investigate the one who they defeated before. Odin recalls how futile their efforts were, how each of them fell to the giants, until it was him, alone, left. Say farewell to Midgard, once and for all, Odin says, just as I should have done. This comic was… also wild. Jason Aaron really seems to get the scope of what Kirby intended with his original concept of the Celestials, and does a great job playing with these characters. As far as the Eternals, okay, so, so it's become something of a trope in comic books to kill characters for the purpose of magnifying the threat of a villain or situation, and that's totally what's happening here. I don't usually care for it, but in this case, it does kind of work. It really comes down to what kind of familiarity or attachment a person has to the characters of the Eternals. If someone were a fan of them, this would kind of suck. Besides Icarus, the rest of them just die off panel. And while Icarus kind of has a moment where he's trying to pass information onto Iron Man, all in all, the deaths themselves are pointless and unheroic. It does add tension and stakes to the story, but it's just, you know, it's kind of a shame to just throw characters away like that that being said this take on the avengers is very cool just the stakes the story the art the characters they choose i love seeing ghost rider in the mix here i'm digging it this whole story is actually really good start to finish it's a good homage to the very first forming of the avengers with you know having loki there and yeah it's rad superman how can you be alive toy man sent me to the future and vandal savage and i fought some giant cockroaches and It's complicated. All right. Three years later, it's 2021. Oh, that's that's this year. What's been happening? Uh, Who knows? It's hard to keep track of history while you're living it. Uh, One important thing to this conversation at the 2019 San Diego Comic-Con, Marvel executive producer Kevin Feige announces the Eternals movie. In reality, though, The Eternals was thought to be one of the company's next movies a while beforehand, with writers being hired for the film just around the time of the comic book version's death sentence. It's possible Jason Aaron handed in his scripts only a few months before it became clear that The Eternals would be Marvel's newest film franchise. I like to imagine the editorial staff scrambling. Hey, didn't Jason just kill The Eternals? Like, all of them? Jason? What the hell, man? But comic books are comic books, and you can always just bring them back. And that's what Marvel does. They launch a new Eternals series in January 2021. Eternals, Volume 5, Number 1. Writing by Kieran Gillen. Arts by Asad Rabique. Color arts by Matthew Wilson. Letters and designs by VCs Clayton Cows. Icarus opens his eyes once again. A mysterious voice asks him to recite the principles. Icarus obliges. Protect Celestials. Protect the Machine. Correct Excess Deviation. Icarus takes a moment to remember his and the other Celestials' deaths before carrying on. The same mysterious voice narrates, saying, He feels it. Breathes deeply and lets it go. He aims himself at the task ahead. He flies at the future without fear or regret. He has always been a living arrow. Icarus has been brought back to life by the Machine, In a place called the Exclusion, a visually sprawling mechanical construct that's, quote, sealed between six artificial molecules, secreted beneath the South Pole. I wonder whether I could get there with Google Maps or not. The machine conjures Icarus's costume onto the Eternal's body and tells him that Xeros, the Prime Eternal, wishes to speak. Xeros tells Icarus that a decision has been made, and that Sprite is to be freed from her imprisonment, restored to her last safe backup, despite what she has done in the past. Icarus isn't happy about it, but he goes and gets her. Sprite is very much her namesake. Lithe, energetic, and obnoxious. She immediately starts to annoy Icarus by taunting him to catch her, and creating a bunch of illusionary duplicates to confuse him. After a tussle, Sprite teleports away, and Icarus follows after. One of the perks of being an Eternal is that the machine acts as a global transit system, allowing them to teleport to one of the various nodes built out across the world. Even immortal beings have to make a commute sometimes, I guess. But they do it in style. Now, in New York City, Sprite is astonished by what she finds there. Last she remembers, humans were just funny apes, but now they have all these shiny things like skyscrapers and cars. Sprite asks what she did to be punished, and Icarus explains that she grew bored as an eternal child and nearly destroyed the machine to try to free herself from that. Then, Iron Man shows up. Icarus explains that, the Eternals are feeling much better these days, and their conversation is interrupted by both Eternals briefly keeling over from an excess deviation alert, where they gotta go take care of a Deviant. Iron Man offers the help, but the Eternals say they've got it handled, so the middle head flies off, saying, Eternals gotta Eternal. Icarus and Sprite head into the sewers to hunt a Deviant. The machine's narration explains that the Deviants are the changing people. They are each a species of one. Some are small and as friendly as a puppy, but others... The one the duo finds is a towering monster of flab, tentacles, and sharp extrusions. Icarus and Sprite make short work of it before it can kill a tourist that it's kidnapped. Afterwards, the two teleport to Olympia, located in northern Greece, which is folded behind Mount Olympus in an echo dimension. They say hi to Fastos and some of the other Eternals, but there is dire news. Xuras has been murdered. Icarus bickers with fellow Eternal Druig over the next best course of action. Druig argues for them to wait until Zeros is brought back to life, so he can tell them what happened. But Icarus is a protagonist, so if there's anything he's bad at, it's waiting. He asks the machine to track the destination of the murderer, and travels to Titanos, fallen capital of the Eternals, superimposed between three seconds from now and two seconds ago. Wait. So that would make it... No, forget it. Here, Icarus sees some visions of an event yet to come, the sight of a boy's grave. Icarus doesn't know the name on the grave, but decides out loud that the boy will live. But another voice nearby objects. More eternal blasphemy. An affront against the universe. All that live must die. When I am done, there will be but a single thing that is eternal. Death. Icarus looks over to see Thanos. You know, that big purple guy who likes to collect pretty stones. Wow. Wasn't expecting to see that guy, huh? This was... pretty good. I think this is the best and only way to reboot old properties like the Eternals that have been used inconsistently over the years. You start the world building from the ground up, introducing new unifying ideas while referencing where they've been before. I really like the throughline of seeing the Eternals through the eyes of Iron Man, who doesn't really get what they're doing. You know, he knows about them but doesn't really get their deal. Kind of like most readers, you know, they, they they know the Eternals, the name is kind of familiar, but what are they actually doing? What are they about? Yeah, I who knows. So, yeah, that was neat. It kind of cements their position in the Marvel universe as obscure but rich with complex history. I think the machine makes a very cool narrator throughout this issue. As far as I know, the machine is a new element to the Eternals, and I really like it a lot. I think the Eternals kind of need something like that. And it's, it serves the purpose of primarily bringing the Eternals back to life, but more so than that, it, it kind of cements them all together, serving as this unifying element to all of the different characters and all of the different interpretations. It's also unclear how reliable of a narrator the machine is. It certainly has opinions about Icarus as well as the other Eternals that we encounter in this issue. It also makes some pop culture references that I I, I, I liked. I'd left it out of my synopsis because it wasn't super relevant, but at one point the machine talks about gremlins to make a point, and it's kind of... The machine itself is kind of surprised to find itself make those references kind of further the question of of how reliable of a narrator the machine is so yeah it's always nice to have a narrator that's both omniscient but has a personality so that that's really cool to see i really like that thanos is the villain pitted against the eternals the more you know about the characters the more it just makes sense continuity wise thanos is the son of a prominent eternal but beyond that it makes sense thematically in the comics thanos is literally in love with death like the personified death, so he's a perfect foil to a group of characters who can't die. To Thanos, that's anathema. Their very existence is offensive to his worldview, and he'll do everything he can to set things in order. Finally, I much prefer the way the Deviants are handled in this interpretation than, it, what, than they were originally or in other interpretations I've seen. So in this, the Deviants are less so a rival civilization of humanoids and more so monsters. More specifically, each new Deviant is something completely different. So they're, they're not like a people that are all hanging out with each other. And are inherently evil. It's just each one is just a new, completely different creature. And sometimes those creatures are benign or harmless, but other times they're very dangerous to the environment around them. And I think that's a much better take on that kind of concept than just having these people that are just treated as, you know, bad. Overall, I really like this reboot, and you know, I might read more. I, I'm interested in seeing where it goes. Slight update, I did in fact read more, and in the second or third issue, the Kirby version of the Deviants show up again. They live on the ground, and at least as far as the Eternals are concerned, they're a race of evil people. So, what are you going to do? It does kind of seem to me like the creative team is leaving some room to add some complexity to that dynamic, so we'll see where it goes. All right, and I think that's a wrap on that episode. Thank you for listening to episode number two of Not a Hoax, Not a Dream. If you haven't listened to episode number one yet on Superman, that's available now, and there's many more episodes to come. If you like this, you can give the podcast a rating, you can subscribe or follow, you can tell a friend. If you have any questions, send an email at drcomicbookie at gmail.com or find the show's page on Instagram. There you can like, comment, do all that cool social media stuff you know also you can suggest which characters you'd like me to cover next there's certainly a lot of them to choose from if i forgot something about any of these stories these characters you know let me know that too marvel comics probably has the whole no prize thing trademarked but maybe there's some kind of off-brand version of the no prize i could find you know and, and send that your way that'd be cool The next episode, coming out soon, will be on Hawkeye. We'll cover the Archer's secret origin when mild mannered purple leotard enthusiast Clint Barton was bitten by a radioactive hawk. Haven't done all my research yet, but pretty sure that's what happened. Find out next time on Not a Hoax, Not a Dream.